Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Hi, everybody. My name is Austin Vondercheck. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood Church, and it is great to have all of you here uh, today. And we are finishing up a tech is not my friend today. Thank you, Jeff. Um, we're finishing up a series today called The Great Betrayal. And this series has brought us up to the point of Easter where we're looking at the doubt and abandonment, which is today, and betrayal that Jesus experienced in the final week of his life. And uh, this is our last week because next week is Easter. And because next week is Easter, this week, in terms of the church calendar, is Palm Sunday, as you saw the kids kind of start us off on the right note this morning. And uh, Palm Sunday is the traditional day that highlights Jesus's entry into uh, Jerusalem, into Jerusalem for the final time as he got closer and closer to his crucifixion and eventual resurrection. Now, if you would have been there uh, that day when everyone was waving their palms as Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, there would have been a lot of fanfare and excitement. You would have been caught up with it in the crowd. But ironically, when we think about abandonment, the abandonment of Jesus, uh, or rather the abandonment of the followers of Jesus, I should say, uh, Palm Sunday kind of takes on a whole new symbol. The palm branches look a little different when we consider uh, this supposed day of victory in the shadow of the crucifixion uh, and, uh, and the arrest of Jesus. Now, we're going to be looking at, at three things today. Here's, kind of, here's where we're going. You know where we're going. Uh, we are going to first be looking at how Jesus experienced abandonment. Uh, from his followers, and that will take us into the last week of Jesus's life. We're also going to go back in time a little bit. We're also going to go forward in time, past the resurrection, and look at some examples of that. Then we're going to look at how, um, how Jesus reacts to this abandonment and ultimately get us to a place where we can understand uh, what the abandonment that Jesus experienced and how he reacts actually gives us a glimpse of the core of the nature of the God that we worship here uh, at Rosewood Church. And to, um, to understand the abandonment that Jesus experienced, we have to look at Palm Sunday, certainly. Uh, but uh, we're going to actually go back in time a little bit. Uh, back in time in Jesus's ministry, towards the beginning of his ministry, uh, in John chapter 6. Now, at the point that we know as John chapter 6 today, uh, Jesus has been like, blowing crowds away. He is uh, exciting. He's got followers. He's got fanboys. We've got all these people who are following him. He love, people love him. People love him. And then in John 6, something changes. In fact, he has this teaching. And after the teaching, uh, the, the way that it's described by John, he says it's a very hard teaching. 
And this teaching is about his divine identity and the sacrifice that is required to follow him. Now, Jesus looks around in in chapter six. Basically, he looks around and he sees all of these people following him, which for many of us, we'd look around and say, I'm doing it. I made it. I've got all these people. But he looks around and he sees people who are there because of everything that he's given to them. And then he says, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Everything he has taught and done up up to this point has been for the benefit of others. And now in John 6, in this hard teaching where he talks about being the bread of life, what he's doing is kind of turning it a bit. And he's saying, look, you guys, you guys have been receiving, you've been receiving, you've been receiving. That's great. But now let's talk about sacrifice. Let's talk about something that it might cost you. And suddenly when there's something that might cost them, the crowds start to evaporate. And they start to make their way and they leave him alone. And he's down to 12. Of course, as we read the story, he'll have eventually even fewer. Uh, But it's no longer he's so popular. It's no wonder he's so popular up to that point. It's all benefits. It's no sacrifice. I mean, for instance, let's just modernize this a bit. Let's say, let's say, um, because I'm not one who can perform miracles, at least not that I'm aware of yet. Maybe later. But let's just say, um, tomorrow's Easter, or next week's Easter, right? So, how about this? Uh, let's just advertise this. Everyone who comes to Rosewood Church next week gets $100 and a voucher for a free back rub from Paul Rudd or Natalie Portman. Your choice. <laughs> how busy do you think we're going to be? Oh, oh, Pastor Howard says he'll do it too. Um, <laughs> So, so your choice, right? Like we would be packed. We'd be packed. We'd be so busy around here. And if, if numbers are all that matters, why should we not? Why should we not? We're, we live in a place in this area. There are so many churches. And because there are so many churches, you know what you get a lot of? Church gossip. You know that gossip. Oh yeah, that church used to be a thousand people. They're like 300 now. What do you think's going on there? You've heard that gossip, right? And it could go the other way too. Suddenly a church explodes. It's got 2,000 people there. And I have learned over time and and looking at, take that down. Um, (laughs) I have learned over time that uh, uh, you cannot judge a church based upon attendance or the trajectory of attendance. I've seen incredible churches do great things and find themselves actually going down in numbers. Why? Because oftentimes what they're doing is calling towards greater sacrifice. So it's not a hard and fast rule to look at numbers and say, oh, well, that, that, that person's got it, that church has got it, that, that church doesn't. Because if we were to apply the same standards to Jesus, Jesus is an absolute failure at this point. And he will be more of a failure as the story goes on. So Jesus sees this crowd of people who are following him for what he gives, not for who he is. And so part of Jesus's teaching is to offer himself. He challenges his audience to say, will I be enough for you? Or are you in it for what you get in return for what he gives? And then from that time, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want to notice what Jesus doesn't do when this happens. When all of these people turn around and they leave, what Jesus does not do is turn back on his teaching that turns so many people away. He doesn't run after them saying, hey, we can negotiate, right? Like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. He doesn't think, oh, I made a mistake. There's fewer people here. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't give in. Like the father who watches the prodigal son walk over the horizon not to be seen for a long time. Jesus watches as this crowd evaporates. And it hurts him. But he doesn't, he doesn't chase them away. He allows them to to walk away. And that causes him great pain, but if the choice is to walk, it is their choice. Now, meanwhile, years passed. Popularity grows again. Now he's got the crowds. We catch back up with Jesus as he's entering Jerusalem with all the people around him waving palm branches, being excited, celebrating, greeting him with, with loads of, 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 of you know, admirers there along the streets who are there to see him, egging him on to again act in a way that, that benefits them. And yet the same people who shouted Hosanna that day on the triumphal entry, on, good, on the day that we call today Palm Sunday, the people who are shouting Hosanna, some of them would join in with the crowds to shout crucify him just four or five days later. The man who fed over 5,000 people would eventually be crucified with, fewer, with so few people you could count them on one hand who are still faithful to him, who are still there with him towards the very end. Quite the change in about four or five days. Why is Jesus abandoned? Well, I think that one reason, you could look at it from like a human psychology point of view, and I think you could blame mob mentality a little bit on this, that if you hear that there are enough people saying the same thing, even if you disagree, you might actually find yourself believing it, so long as there's enough people around you. A lot of people just kind of are comfortable letting the group think for them. And so, so it could have been a bit of mob mentality that plays out here. After all, we know from the gospel accounts that the priests were, were kind of trying to stir up the crowd to be against Jesus. So, so yeah, I think there's definitely some, some grounds to say there's a little bit of mob mentality happening uh, here in, in this story. But also, I think we could just talk about some good old-fashioned fear. Some fear from the people who follow Jesus. Because associating with Jesus after he's arrested could very well have gotten you in the same place. In fact, you could have very well have met the same fate as Jesus. So you have to be quite sure of yourself to be willing to die for something. And the reality is that in that moment, the disciples weren't all that sure. They weren't willing to lay down their lives for him. We know that. They ran away. They abandoned him. They weren't ready to lay down their life. Certainly not for a person who, whose claims now felt a bit um, maybe untrue. The reason the church lost all of its momentum and its hope when Jesus was arrested and crucified was actually not because of the things that Jesus taught but because of what he claimed about himself. Now, let me, let me explain this a little bit different way. Um, if you go look at 
uh, selection of self-help books, okay? And you look at the, you read them or you look at the titles or the, the chapter titles, whatever. You look through it. You will find Jesus in every single self-help book out there. He may not be cited, but his teachings are there. Many of his teachings are universally accepted by people all over the world, no matter what religion you believe, whether you have a religion or not. They're, they're accepted by so many people. You don't need faith in Jesus to look at many of Jesus' teachings and nod your head and say, yes, those are ways that humanity, these are, these are means by which humanity should be governed. However, what he said about himself was really what moved the movement of Christianity forward. He said that he was the son of God who had the authority to forgive sins, to release people from the eternal consequences of sin and to make the relationship between, between, between them and God whole again. Keeping the movement alive was contingent upon keeping Jesus alive. Because if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and the resurrection and the life die, what does that have to say about the resurrection and the life? His thousands of followers and closest friends left because when Jesus' life was over, so was their hope. Why die for a man who was wrong? Why die for a man who lied? In the garden following the Passover dinner, the cracks that had been forming finally give way. And there in the garden, after, after Jesus has what we see today as the first communion uh, with his disciples, uh, there in the garden, his support gives way. And all of the people leave him. After Jesus was arrested, Mark says, actually describes it simply. He says, everyone deserted him and fled. Which is interesting. In the other three gospels that says that the disciples deserted him and fled. It's almost like when Mark writes, he's saying, I can't even call us disciples. It's just going to be everyone because they're not acting in a way worthy of a disciple. So now skip ahead. Okay. We're going to go forward in time. We're going to go past the crucifixion, past the resurrection. We're going to go actually about 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus to a point in Christian history. Now on the other side of all of this and in, in the, the 200s and the 300s AD, uh, Christians were harassed and even killed because they were following Jesus. And despite, or as some say, perhaps because of uh, this persecution, Christianity grows. The, the Christianity becomes this unstoppable movement. You can kill as many of them as you want, but they still continue to spread. The movement continues to grow until 313 AD, General, uh, uh, Emperor Constantine signs the Edict of Milan, and there you've got Christianity going from this persecution, persecuted sect to the state religion of the Roman Empire. Everything changes for Christianity. Christianity in 313 AD. And at that time of transition, the church has a very important decision to make. What do you do with the people who are alive still, who deny Jesus in order to save their life? What do you do with the people who abandon Jesus because associating with Jesus would get you killed? What do you do with them now that it's safe? What do you do with it now that it's not a punishable offense and they want back into these Christian communities? What do you do? 
Now, if you had been alive during the Roman Empire, I mean, put yourself in this position. Let's say that you're alive, you're part of the church, you, you didn't get caught, so you haven't been in a place where you've had to say, I'm a Christ follower, or I follow the way, or however they would have said it back then. Uh, so so you've, you've made it through this. But you know people from your underground church, or from your family, or from your friends, who, who died because to the very end, they professed Jesus' name. And now, there are people who have denied him, who have, who have gone through the process of, of demonstrating to the Roman authorities that they don't believe. What do you do with the people who have abandoned their faith and now want back in, now that everything is, is safe? Well, as you might imagine, this question led to years of fighting between Christians, trying to understand uh, what they wanted to do, sort through their emotions, and also what Jesus taught, and try to find the best posture to take to them, take towards them. And, and, uh, and so many people, um, or rather, they, they disagreed about how this abandonment and denial should actually be dealt with. And they also disagreed about who should deal with it. Should this be something that they judge, or is this something to leave for God's hand at the end? So many people benefited from Jesus through his teaching and miracles. So we're going to get back into the story of Jesus here. Um, But yet in the garden, during the time when Jesus needed a friend or an ally more than any other time, when he was at his lowest, in a way, sobbing in prayers to his father, knowing what's coming next. When Jesus just needed someone to be on his side, everyone left. As Mark said, everyone fled. Everyone deserted him and ran away. And yet this compounding agony crescendoed until Jesus hung on the cross. And somehow all of this is wrapped up into the resurrection and redemption story that we know today. Now, what's interesting, and and I don't know if this is coincidental or not or intentional. Well, I know it's coincidental. I don't know if it's intentional or not. But it seems so interesting to me that in the garden is where Jesus is abandoned to his lowest point. And it's in the garden where God the Father is abandoned and betrayed Uh, to his lowest point in Genesis 3. You go back in time to Genesis 3 and you see Adam and Eve in the garden abandoning God and creating this separation between between humanity and God. And and there in in the final days of Jesus' life, in a garden, he's abandoned. It's it's almost as if, it's it's almost as if before redemption, the the fulfillment of redemption can come. The fulfillment of abandonment kind of has to to play out. The fulfillment of betrayal has to play out. As if Jesus needs to pass through a similar experience as his father did before he can begin his own and, and complete his redemptive work on a cross. But what comes next is crucial to understand the core of God's character. What comes next after the arrest and after the sham trials that take place and is the crucifixion. Jesus' response to the abandonment and betrayal of nearly every single person. Again, you could count them all on one hand, those who didn't abandon Jesus at the very end. The way that Jesus responds with all of this is to stay the course. Even though he is abandoned, he does not abandon those for whom he came to die for. He sticks 
the course ahead. He moves ahead in his plans. After Jesus was betrayed, he stayed the course to the cross. And the cross becomes a symbol now today when we look at it, not of necessarily execution, though it is, but also a symbol of faithfulness of God who stuck the course. John 3, 16 uh, says that God, it starts with God loved the whole world. And there's no asterisk on that. God didn't love the parts that accepted him and love the people who accepted him, but then reject the people who, who, who denied him, who abandoned him and the parts that didn't work uh, towards what uh, didn't, didn't work for him. It was an all or nothing love. He loved the whole world, no asterisks. Rejection and abandonment did not sway Jesus from what he came to do. He came to serve those who abandoned him, who rejected him. And he knew it. And he kept moving forward. And now today, as we look at it, the cross is this twofold imagery in light of abandonment. It's a, it's a, it's a symbol of, of challenge And it's a symbol of of comfort. On the one hand, it's a challenge. Jesus' abandonment pushes us to, to find our place in the story. To understand where we might be if if we were in the garden that night. When the heat is turned up and the pressure mounts, and following Jesus requires more sacrifice than maybe the blessings and the good feelings that we receive in return, when that happens, how will we respond? Will we stand strong and stand with Jesus? Or will we shy away? Will we run away? Will we fall asleep and no longer remain vigilant with our God? In a way, it's kind of a hypothetical question. It's a question, it's a question you can't answer until you have to answer it. I mean, think about Peter. Peter was one who, he, he believed, he said before he, Jesus was arrested, I will never leave you. And then he goes and denies him three times. It becomes what many of us remember about Peter is his denial. So what will we do? What will you do? But that's not all, because the cross is also a symbol of comfort. Because even in the face of abandonment, Jesus responded with love. As much as maybe we would like to say that we would always be there, that we'll always stay strong, that we'll never shy away, you'll never make a compromise. As much as we'd like to think that, the reality is that we don't win every battle. That sometimes the pressures of the enemy, pressures like peer pressure and, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, greed and, and pride, those kind of things get in the way. And they overcome us in our attempt to always be there with Jesus, always be there for Jesus. And we don't win every battle, but God is good because he is faithful even when we are faithless. I'd like to actually end this message uh, with the words of the song, Come Thou, Font of Every Blessing. It's a well-worn hymn, uh, and there's actually going to be three slides of it. I'm thinking, I wasn't sure how many of y'all would still be stuck in an airport after spring break, so I wasn't sure how busy it would be, but we got enough people. I was just going to read them, but I think we can sing them. Acapella. All right, I'll start, I'll start us, um, then I'll cut my mic, <laughs> uh, and you'll know why. Um, but as you sing, as you sit, for some of you, maybe you haven't heard the song, and that's fine. I think there's enough of us here that we can carry this tune all the way to the end. There's going to be three slides of lyrics. Let's sing together and listen to these words about our God's faithfulness. 
Oh, to grace. In death and resurrection, Christ sealed your heart for eternity. And your heart is held there sealed, not through your faithfulness, but through the faithfulness of Christ. Let's pray. God, we do wander at times. We have aspirations of such fierce faithfulness that we would stand up to any pressure, any raging sea, any circumstance in our life, God, that we would be able to stand up to that. And Jesus, in many cases, we do. You you give us the, the boldness and the courage to not lose faith, to not lose hope, and to not sacrifice temporary things on this world for the eternal treasure in heaven. But God, we also know and we recognize that we don't win every battle. As sometimes an arrow pierces through that armor of ours. A weak point is found. And we struggle in our own faithlessness. And God, while we may not necessarily abandon our faith entirely, God, we certainly do make compromises. We certainly do try to find a way to thread the needle and be a citizen of this world and a citizen of heaven at the same time, so long as it suits us best. So God, give us boldness. But maybe even, maybe even more importantly than that, God, remind us of your faithfulness and your love. That you are there with us through everything. That though we may abandon you, you do not abandon us. God, thank you for that faithfulness and your mercy and your grace. God, make us bold to stand in the face of anything that comes our way and proclaim and worship your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.